So if you were to die today, and you were to stand before God, and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? I know when I've been out sharing the gospel, I would ask that question sometimes. What would you say if God were to ask you why he should let you into his heaven? What, what would you say? And I've heard all sorts of things. And to be honest, I, I've asked myself that or I've heard that asked to me before. And I have said all sorts of things. I, for the longest time, thought that I was saved and going to heaven and forgiven of my sins because I prayed a prayer, walked down an aisle, got baptized and went to church. For the longest time, that's what I thought gave me my assurance. And so my response was, well, I asked Jesus to my heart. I was baptized and I go to church. And so I would look to all those things to give me the sense of acceptance before God, knowing that, okay, that's why I'm accepted before God. And so my question to you this morning is much the same. If you were to be asked that question, if God were to look you in the eye at the day of your death when you stand before his throne and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? Would you list a bunch of activities that you've done? Would you list the fact that you've been baptized, that you've attended church, that your family has been a Christian, that you just grew up in church? That, that you know a lot about what the Bible says, that, that you give and you come on Sundays and you try to read your Bible every day? Would you, would you list all the things that you've done? I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've, I've helped with vacation Bible school. I've shared the gospel with a whole bunch of people. Would you, would you list all the things that you know that, that, we're, that salvation is through Jesus Christ and all this. Would you list all these things that you know, all these things that you've done, all these things that you have accomplished? Is that what you would look to to give you confidence on that day when you face God? Because a question that we need to answer for ourselves is, how is it that we are accepted by God? Where do we find our acceptance by God? Because in this world, we, we want to be accepted, whether we admit it or not. That's one of the things we want. We want to be accepted by those that we love. We want to be accepted by our family. We want to find acceptance at work amongst our coworkers. All these things, we want to find acceptance. And those things point to an even more real reality of finding acceptance with God. And a lot of times when we think of finding acceptance with God, we, we sometimes want to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, therefore I'm probably going to be okay. I mean, I haven't killed anybody, I'm not hooked on drugs, I'm not running around acting crazy, and so I'm good with God, it's fine, and hopefully at the end of my life, my, my good will outweigh my bad. And that's how a lot of people think. A lot of people think that if my good will outweigh my bad, then I will be accepted by God. So what is it that you look to for confidence that God will accept you into his kingdom? What is it that makes you acceptable and accepted by God? Well, in this passage, Paul addresses that very thing. In Romans 2, in chapter 17 through 29, we can discover the answer to what makes us acceptable to God. And so if you would look there with me in God's word to Romans in chapter 2, starting in verse 17, all the way, Lord willing, through verse 29 this morning, as we discover the answer to what makes us acceptable to God. 
We start off there right there in verse 17. It says, but if you call yourself a Jew, and we'll just stop right there for just a moment. So right now, Paul, he's continuing this indictment upon the Jews that he's writing to. So he's, he's writing to these Christians that are in Rome that are either Jewish or Gentile. And he has just recently in the end of chapter one talked about how Gentiles are all sinful even though they do not have the law of God. They know the truth of who God is because God has revealed it to them through his creation. And they have suppressed the truth about who God is and they have exchanged the truth of who God is for a lie and began to worship and serve creature rather than creator. And so God handed them over to more and more wickedness and more and more sin and more and more of just a evil and wicked mind. And so Paul has already set the stage and indicted everyone who's not a Jew. So if you're not a Jew in here, Paul has already shown through scripture that you are a sinner who has suppressed the truth of God. And then Last week in this first portion of chapter 2, he's been addressing the, the, the sins of some of the Jewish people uh, because they were relying on themselves and their, 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 their knowledge of the truth and of the law of God as a means of becoming righteous. And we learned last week, if you were with us, you might remember that, that we don't deserve anything from God other than judgment, but yet we, we receive grace just by his own kindness and love for us through Jesus Christ. And we would think at this point, we might get to a point in Romans where we get some good news because to be honest, the past couple of weeks have been tough, but Paul still doesn't relent. He doesn't let up. He is still going and showing how all of us have sinned against a holy God. And so this week, he, he's going to be finishing up his indictment of the Jewish people. And we can glean from the indictment of them and even look into our own lives and see some, some similarities because we, like the Jews in that time, we have the Bible. We know God's word. We know what God loves and what honors God. And we too can find ourselves making the same mistakes they did in trying to find acceptance by God. And so if you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And we'll just stop there for just a second. And so the Jewish people at that time, they had God's law. They knew the law of God and they had the knowledge of the law of God. They boasted in God and they were instructed from the law of God and they knew what was right and what was good. We too, we have what? We have God's word. We know what God desires. We know what pleases God. We can grow in our knowledge of the word because we have it with us. We can get it free on our phones. We can hear it on the radio. We can hear God's word all the time and grow in our knowledge of God and who God is. And so we too can, can grow in our knowledge of God and end up boasting maybe in our knowledge of God. But what we need to understand first and foremost is that God does not accept us based on anything that we have accomplished. That is not how we find acceptance with God. We are not accepted by anything that we accomplish. And the first thing we need to see is one of those accomplishments may be growing in knowledge. Just because you know a lot doesn't mean that you're going to be accepted by God. Just because you know all the big theological terms doesn't mean that you're going to be accepted by God. Just because you believe in the doctrines of grace that God 
has chosen you before the foundation of the world to save you doesn't mean that you are accepted by God. Just because you know the Bible cover to cover doesn't mean that you're going to be accepted by God. And sometimes we rely too much on what we know to give us acceptance. But here's the danger with that. James tells us that the demons know God. The demons believe in God and believe in Jesus and what do they do? They shudder. What do we do when we come face to face with the Holy God? Make excuses, mock, all sorts of things instead of bowing down in holy reverence. And so we must be careful because to just look at your knowledge of God makes us no better than the demons that fell from heaven, that were thrown out of heaven. See, God does not accept us based on anything that we've done, including all the knowledge that we have gained. And we see here, that's one of the indictments here of, of the people that Paul's talking to is that they know what's good, they know what's right, they know what's excellent, they know the law of God, they studied it, many of them, at this time, they memorized literally the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12 years old. They could memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of it, word for word, they knew it. They knew the law. And yet, Paul's saying, just because they know the law doesn't mean that they're accepted by God. Just because we know a lot about the Bible doesn't mean that we're going to be accepted by God. Continue there in verse 19. If you're sure that you yourself are a God to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law an embodiment of the knowledge and truth, so if you're sure that you, you know all these things, that you do all these things, in other words, if you do all these things for God, you serve God, just because you serve God doesn't mean that you're accepted by God. Hell will be filled with people who sit in a pew for all of their life. Hell will be filled with people who stand behind pulpits and preach. Hell will be filled with people who taught Sunday school because they relied on themselves. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say that at the last day, there will be those that come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. And I will look at them and I will say, depart from me, for I have never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Friends, we are not accepted by God based on anything that we do, anything that we know, anything that we accomplish, even if we spent our entire lives preaching teaching and serving in some way that is not where we find our identity that is not where we find our acceptance those things are great things to do but they make terrible gods and sometimes we can make a god out of our knowledge and a god out of our actions but we see that there's something else here he says then you who who teach others verse 21 do you not teach yourself and see that's where the indictment really comes full circle because we know the truth we tell others the truth, and yet do we still see ourselves sinning? How many of you still sin? Every one of us, right? And so that's the point Paul's making, is that just because we know the Bible and we serve God, we still sin, and therefore on our own, we can't rely on our knowledge and our actions to prove anything because we still sin. You still sin, I still sin. Notice what he says there. When you preach against stealing, do you steal? Well, I mean, I don't break into somebody's house and steal, but, but we need to remember that stealing, even if you go to a bank and you steal $1,000 out of their vault, 
That's really bad theft, right? You're going to jail. But many of you have probably gone to a bank and walked off with one of their pins. Guess what? You robbed a bank. It's still theft. It's still stealing. So you who steal and say stealing is wrong, do you still steal? What do we call someone who steals something? A thief, right? What about this? Uh, You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, we know the Bible says we don't need to be running around cheating on our spouses or running off with somebody else. But the Bible says that if you look at a woman or a man with lust, that you have committed adultery with her or him in your heart. Lust is just simply sexual desire. And so if you have looked at someone who is not your spouse with sexual desire, guess what? You have committed adultery. Lust in your heart. Because you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, if you hate idolatry, right? Like we are not running around saying we should worship Buddha, right? Like we, we get that. But it says, do you rob temples? And so the idea here is kind of like the rich young ruler we think about when, when this guy came to Jesus and said, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus just straight up addresses him right there in his sin and says, hold up, hold up. You say good. No one's good but God alone. And then he said, this is what you do. He, he says, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, all those things. And so Jesus is like, no one's good but God alone. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. If you want to inherit the kingdom of God, this is what you do. But no one is good but God alone. And all of a sudden, Richard Mueller goes, me too. I'm good too. I've kept all those things from my youth. I have done every bit of it. I have kept the law perfect. I have never lied. I've never stolen. I've never cheated. I've never done all these things. And we would expect Jesus to say, well, hey, just say this prayer. Ask me into your heart and I'll be with you forever. But no, what does he say? No, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And what does the rich young ruler do? He walks away sad and defeated and upset. Why? Because he said he hated idolatry. And he said that he never stole. And he said that he never lied. But yet, Jesus got to the heart of the the matter. He loved his money more than anything. He lived and breathed according to his own wealth and his own possessions. In other words, he made an idol out of those things. What do you make an idol of out of your life? We know that we don't think we need to be running around following the teachings of Muhammad following the teachings of, of Joseph Smith, following the teachings of uh, the, the Book of Mormon, following the teachings of Buddha and Hindu and all that. Like, we get that. But don't we also build up idols in our own heart? Like, how much time have we spent watching TV versus prayer and looking at God's Word? How much time have we spent chasing our dreams and desires in this world and not spent chasing and pursuing our own spiritual growth. How how many times do we put our own spouse, our own family, our own friends above our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Those things are not bad things. It's good to pursue a relationship with a family and friends and to pursue your job and to get better at it and, and to have hobbies and spend time doing things that you enjoy. There's nothing wrong with sitting down and watching TV, going hunting, fishing, watching football, all those types of things. There's nothing wrong with those things. 
but they make terrible gods if we put them first on the throne. And so we see here that even though we know the truth, even though we, we serve God, that we still sin. And so we, on our own, are not acceptable, acceptable to God. And so, so far, it, it's not based on what we know that makes us acceptable to God. It's not based on what we have done that makes us acceptable to God. And you may understand that. You may believe that, right? That you're not accepted by God. You're not saved by what you know, and you're not saved by the actions that you have performed. But sometimes in religious circles, we look toward religious rituals that we do to give us salvation, to make us acceptable to God. And the same that was, is true of us is the same thing that is true of them. In verse 25, uh, the Jews, they had this custom that God initiated all the way back in the book of Genesis with Abraham. And it was called circumcision. And we're about to read a little bit about circumcision in this, pack, in this passage. But what would happen is that the males of the Jewish males, all of them would be circumcised. They would have skin cut off. And that circumcision was a sign and a seal of the covenant that God had made with them. And so God had made a covenant with Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham and said that, that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. That through his offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then God made, gave them a sign and a seal of his covenant. And so they had to be circumcised. And so Abraham, who was really old at the time, and all of the men in his tribe were circumcised. And then all the boys that were born were then circumcised on the eighth day. They had skin cut off. And that was to represent the fact that they had been cut off from the rest of the world. That they are now separated from the remainder of the world because they are now God's people. That was the sign and the seal of God's covenant that he made with them. And so we know now that through Abraham, on down the line, came Christ. And Paul tells us in Galatians that, Abra that Jesus is the offspring that God was talking about to Abraham when he said, through your offspring, the nations of the world will be blessed. Through Jesus, the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because through Jesus, we have forgiveness. Through Jesus, we have hope. Through Jesus, we have eternal life. Through Jesus, we have righteousness. But the problem is, is that the Jews of that day looked to their circumcision as a sign of their acceptance to God. That they performed this outward task or they had this outward task done to them that made them acceptable to God. And so Paul goes on to write, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed of some value if you obey the law. So they, they understood that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day, but they would go and they would do that and they would say, okay, because I have been circumcised, I am a part of the people of God. I am accepted by God. The problem is, is they obey that portion, but not all of what God has told them to do then Paul's saying that it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not, you're not going to be accepted by God because you're not obeying the law. It says here, circumcision, <clears throat> 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And at this point, I want you to just think for a minute, especially for those Gentiles who converted to Judaism, who got circumcised later in life, 
who felt every ounce and inch of pain that came from being circumcised. For Paul to go and say, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. That would blow your mind. Like how in the world? You're, you're telling me now, I went through all of this and it means nothing because I've sinned, I've broken God's law. Like you would probably be irritated if you were a dude that had just gone through that. And then he goes on to say, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And at this point, I would be fuming. You mean I went through all that for nothing? I didn't have to go through that? Like if I just keep the law, I'm good? Well, then we go on and we see, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and, and circumcision but break the law. For a Jew is not one who is merely one outward, nor circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly circumcision, a matter of the heart by the spirit. Paul's whole point here is the religious ritual of being circumcised does not make the Jewish people acceptable to God. Just because a person is circumcised doesn't mean that they're acceptable to God. Now, most of us, we understand that, right? Like we understand that circumcision, like, that's a natural practice in Western culture. And just because you do that doesn't mean like you're acceptable to God. So what does this refer to for us here and now? Well, we need to understand God has also given us a sign and a seal of the new covenant with us. And just as the people of God in the Old Testament were circumcised, we as believers have baptism as our sign and our seal. And so when we are saved... We trust Christ. We then go and we do just as Jesus was done, dipped all the way under the water, raised up, and we're told in Romans, and we'll get to this in, in a little while, says we're crucified and buried with Christ and risen to walk in a newness of life. The burial in baptism represents the body of Christ being laid in the grave. And when we raise up out of the water, that represents the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what that represents is our old self being cut off by the blood of the cross and our new self walking in life with Christ. The problem, though, is, is that we as Christians, sometimes there are some groups who believe that if you are baptized, that is the sign that you are saved. That it is your baptism that saves you. That somehow going in the water makes it where you are saved. Friends, we are not accepted by God through any religious ritual that we perform. doesn't matter if you've been baptized. doesn't matter if you've taken the Lord's Supper. Those things do not mean you are accepted by God. There's a real danger in relying on anything that we do to make us acceptable to God because God doesn't accept you based on anything that you do. And the reason for that is at the end of the day, we have all still sinned and our good actions do not pay for our sin. Our good actions do not pay or cover our sins. And our sins really come from the fact <coughs> that we have a worldly heart. Notice there in verse 28, no one's a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision a matter of the heart. Paul's talking about here this idea of being circumcised of heart. We see this idea 
um, portrayed throughout different parts in the Old Testament, specifically in Jeremiah. It, it talks about how it's a crooked generation who are uncircumcised of heart. And it talks about this idea of how this, this heart is still worldly and fleshly. When we think of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else, for who can understand it? The Bible tells us in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to the man, but its end is in judgment. So how many of you have ever heard the phrase, just follow your heart? How many of you have heard that? That is a terrible lie from the pit of hell. The devil wants you to follow your heart because your heart will lead you to damnation. Your heart will lead you to the grave and to hell because your heart is wicked above all else. The heart is deceitful. Your heart will lie to you. Your feelings will lie to you. Your emotions will lie to you. Why? Because they are all tainted by sin. Your heart tells you if you do good enough, you'll be accepted. If you serve enough, you'll be accepted. If you are baptized, if you take the Lord's Supper, if you give, if you attend, if you read, you're accepted by God. That's what your heart will tell you. But the Bible says your heart is in desperate need of transformation. You see, we all, we have a dead, wicked heart that stands condemned. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sins and in our trespasses. That our heart is dead in sin. And so we need a heart transformation. And how do we get it? Because that's the natural question next. If circumcision is a matter of the heart and not of the flesh, how in the world do I get that? How do I get a heart that is circumcised? Because we've all heard the statement, everyone wants to go to heaven. No one wants to die. No one wants to go to hell. But everybody wants to go to heaven. If there's a heaven, well, we want to be there. So how in the world do we get this circumcised heart? Notice what the Bible says. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. This right here is talking about being born again. Regeneration. Where the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of you and changes your mind and your thinking about Christ. Gives you a new heart. Uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians as being made alive in Christ. So how do we get that? Well, what does that happen? Well, John 3 talks about it. It says that you see the wind, you see where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. In other words, we have no idea God does what He does. His Holy Spirit is the one who comes inside of us. But want me to tell you how you can know that you have a circumcised heart? That your heart has been made new? Do you trust in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in Jesus Christ. You see, over the course of your life, you'll, be, you'll have these opportunities where God is calling you to Himself through the Word. And the moment that you put your faith in Christ, I believe it's the moment that the Holy Spirit of God performs that heart transformation inside of you. We, we always hear about what came first, the chicken or the egg. And sometimes we try to talk about that when it comes to salvation. Like, when are you born again? Before or after faith? Personally, I think it's simultaneously. I believe that the moment that the Holy Spirit changes your heart, you have faith. And the moment that you have faith, the Holy Spirit changes your heart. That they are inseparable factors in salvation. That Jesus, God, Father, Holy Spirit transforms your heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ, gives you this new heart, and you instantaneously have faith in Christ. And so it is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's something that the law could never do. 
Our actions can never do because this is a matter that is not by the letter, but by the Spirit, as Paul says here. And here's the craziest thing here. His praise is not from man. You see, when we rely on our own things, we get our reward. Because when we do good, we get the attaboys. Hey, you're doing a great job. Thank you for serving. Keep it up. You're doing so good. I love how you act with your family and how you pray with them and read the Bible with them. And those things are all good things. But we get the attaboys for that. And if we're looking for that, it's for acceptance. We've already got our reward because man has applauded us and praised us. But notice here, when we rely on heart transformation that God gives us by faith in Christ, our praise is not from man, but from who? God. Now that blows my mind because that is the God of this universe who we are the enemies of, who when we have trusted in his son for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life, it says that he celebrates, that he praises you. We're the one that praises him. And yet here it says that when we have that heart transformation, we are praised by our creator. Good job, son. Good job, daughter. Good job. Come, enjoy this peace. Enjoy this hope. You see, it's a whole lot better to rely on what God has done for us than to rely on what we have done because we still fail miserably. We are going to mess up. We are going to go through this life and rob, steal, hate, lust, and yet God gives us this new heart. The thing we need to understand is that we're not accepted by anything that we have done because holy, righteous actions come after faith. Faith always comes first. Then after faith comes that transformation of life. And so good deeds are important, but they don't save you. Good actions, they're important. They have their place. They don't save you. Salvation comes first. Trusting Christ comes first, then obedience. So when you rely on what we do, to be accepted by God, we're getting the cart before the horse. We're saying that I'm obeying and therefore I'm saved instead of I'm saved, therefore now I'm able to obey in faith. And so what do you look for as the reason why you're accepted by God? Is it your knowledge of the Bible? Is it the good things that you do? Is it the religious rituals that you perform? Friend, you're not accepted by God based on anything that you do, anything that I do. This passage, that's the point so far. Your actions have nothing to do with if you're accepted by God because they do not make you perfect. They do not transform your heart. They do not make you saved. They do not pay for your sins. God is the one who does all those things. He transforms your heart. He pays for your sins all through the gospel of Jesus Christ who took your sins on the cross, died and rose again. And when we trust in that, we know that we have been born again. He has done all of this for us in Christ. We are righteous not because of anything we've done. We're righteous because of the righteousness of Christ that he has given to us by faith in what he has done for us on the cross. Heart transformation always comes before behavior change. And that all happens as a result of what God has done for us. And so God does accept you, but he accepts you based on what he has done for you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. No knowledge, good works, or religious ritual can accomplish any of those things. Only God does it. And today, that's what I want you to know 
That's what I want you to believe with all your heart that yes, you can be accepted by God, but you're not accepted by God based on what you've done. You're accepted by God based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that it's not based on anything that we've done because we failed. We have broken your law. We have sinned against you and we deserve judgment. But instead of judgment that we deserve, we receive your grace through Christ because your own son went to the cross and took the judgment that we deserved. Father, we are lying, thieving, blasphemous people. And yet you have paid the penalty for our fine on the cross. And Father, we know this is true because your son is not dead in a grave, but he is alive at your right hand, ruling, reigning, and interceding forevermore. And so, Father, we come to you now simply clinging to your grace and what you have done for us in Christ. Father, if there is anyone here who has just been weighed down and burdened by the the pains of trying to measure up to be good enough to you, Father, might they find comfort in the fact that your son has accomplished all that for them. Might they find comfort in the fact, Father, that, that simply their faith in you makes them acceptable to you. Help them to find comfort in those truths, knowing that you're accepted, that, that they are accepted by your grace through their faith and what your son has done for us. Father, we thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen.